I think for where Uncharted is in the release calendar, it's going to be an important inflection point in getting that audience ready for the Batman coming out. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I'm kind of the guest here because I haven't been on in a couple of weeks. Uh, so I am joining your regular co-host, uh, Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. Uh, this week, we don't have a big interview or anything, but we're going to talk about February's release schedule. We're going to go over a little bit of what happened at Sundance, although the sort of the meaning of that festival has changed a lot over the last few years since uh, Netflix and other streaming money kind of flowed into the festival. Daniel, uh, you did some Sundance viewing this year. Why don't you why don't you tell us what you took away from that fest? I think you introduced it quite well at the start, Russ, where the meaning of this film festival has, I think, really changed over the last five to ten years with the emergence of all these streaming platforms. Obviously, this is a film festival that rose through prominence, let's say, in the early 90s, the first half of the 90s, with a new crop of independent American directors, uh, with films that were picked up for distribution for not that expensive of a price that did pretty well in theaters and would then, after an exclusive theatrical run, hit the uh, really booming video market at the time. Nowadays, that model's been turned on its head with the emergence of streaming platforms being, let's call it as it is, the primary destination for a lot of these type of movies that premiere at festivals like Sundance. You look at last year's CODA, Daniel, which set the record for the most amount of money uh, spent on an acquisition title out of Sundance. I believe, did Apple spend $25 million to acquire it? And then, I mean, basically dumped it. it. It didn't really play in many theaters at all. There was virtually no publicity surrounding its release. And as we heard from our State of the Art House webinar last year, there were actually some independent theaters that wanted to program it, but were not allowed to do so. So uh, honestly, for me, I Sundance has not been on my radar this year. It, it doesn't really have that sense of urgency around it as it has in the past. Yeah, it's been a few years since I've attended the festival, and uh, it was always a great fest to go to, but a lot of that is just due to the community aspect of it. You know, it was a chance to reconnect with a lot of people you maybe only get to see, maybe you only get to see those people at Sundance or at other festivals. And it's also emerged as a surprisingly good genre festival. You know, it's not like they play a lot of genre stuff, but some of the bigger genre movies and and movies that really make a lot of waves in the genre space have come out of Sundance over the last decade at this point. You know, you can go back to movies like The Babadook or Mandy a few years ago. Uh, you know, titles like that are Sundance movies. And even this year, you've got something like Duel, which features Aaron Paul and Karen Gillan, bought by the same company that distributed Mandy. Like, that's liable to be a movie that ends up with a significant share of, like, headspace amongst people who are interested in genre movies. But it's, like Daniel and Rebecca both said, the, the Sundance of the past in which it, it really defined the tone of American filmmaking seems to be done. It's defining the tone of what 
films are going onto streaming platforms nowadays. I'm sure we will see them pop up on HBO Max, Hulu, Netflix, Apple, etc., etc., etc. I will say that, you know, despite the fact that it was purchased by National Geographic, uh, the documentary Fire of Love, which was about married volcanologists who died in Japan in 1991 uh, during a volcanic eruption, like that movie has oscar nominated written all over it and so i'm curious to see what nat geo does with that title specifically because it seems like it is uh, primed to be an award season player the next time that rolls around and you mentioned two titles from this year's slate at sundance ross that i actually got to see that i thought were actually pretty good and you're right on the nose a duel that is going to be distributed by rlje films is a very fun genre movie The sort of movie that doesn't have to play at packed houses and movie theaters. It can have a nice limited theatrical run and it will find its audience and streaming later on. And you mentioned National Geographic picking up Fire of Love. For me, it was probably the best documentary I saw at Sundance this year. National Geographic, of course, being the sort of theatrical distributor that is not a traditional theatrical distributor in the most classic sense of the word, but was able to find a great documentary success with Free Solo not that long ago. We know that National Geographic can go to theatrical with documentaries that you wouldn't imagine would bring in large audiences, but bring a good number of people to come in. It's, let's call it a seal of quality. Whenever National Geographic comes in and buys a film out of the festival, I think that's certainly the case with Fire of Love. They've also picked up a Brazilian rainforest documentary, The Territory, National Geographic being probably the busiest buyer at a very lackluster Sundance this year in terms of acquisitions, guys. Not too much in the way of major deals. We've got, I guess, leading the charge here with Apple buying Cha-Cha Real Smooth, one of the award winners from the U.S. Dramatic Competition. Guys, I really like this movie. It's starring its writer-director, Cooper Reif, along with Dakota Johnson. This is the type of movie that you would generally call the sort of feel-good indie American Sundance movie. Very prototypical in that regard. The movie being bought by Apple in a market that really didn't bring a lot of attention from major buyers. We've got Focus Features also buying the sci-fi understated comedy Brian and Charles about a lonely old man who builds his own robot at home. And Sony Pictures Classics buying a film that might show up in award season, a remake of an Akira Kurosawa film called Living. In terms of the regular, let's call it big ticket acquisitions, those are really the ones that come out before we go on the second tier, which are theatrical distributors working with streamers to partner on a couple of titles here. One of them, Russ, being a film that you mentioned had been on your radar for a little bit. Yeah, uh, I assume you're talking about Resurrection there, which is the film starring Rebecca Hall and Tim Roth. It wasn't actually on my radar prior to Sundance, but it's one of those where seemingly every review that I saw about it coming out of Sundance highlighted it as a title that was pretty messed up. It's like, I think I saw somebody call it a film for sickos, which means sold. that like I'm sold. sold. Yeah. Let me, let me watch that immediately. I've seen comparisons to the 1981 movie possession, uh, starring Sam Neill and, uh, more importantly, Isabella Johnny. How many times have we given that movie a shout out on this podcast? This might be the only non horror podcast 
where Possession has gotten this much love. That's wonderful. Hey, look, Possession deserves all of the shoutouts it gets and more. I think we don't talk about Possession enough. Resurrection sounds uh, cool as hell. Sounds exactly like a movie I want to watch. And with IFC and Shudder jointly buying it, I will probably end up seeing it on Shudder, which is fine. I love Shudder. It's a great service. But this sounds like a title that would be great to experience in a movie theater and living in the Midwest now. I don't know if I'll get that chance. And the second title that's coming with another streaming theatrical partnership is the sex worker comedy Good Luck to You, Leo Grande, which is coming out from Searchlight and Hulu. Searchlight being a player that has a lot of experience acquiring titles at Sundance. In the years preceding the Disney acquisition, it got unfortunately burned with a couple of high-profile acquisitions. If we remember movies like The Birth of a Nation or Patty Cakes, these were big-ticket buys from Fox Searchlight that didn't really pan out. This doesn't always work out the way it used to in the old model, so we are now seeing Searchlight partnering with a streamer from its parent company and taking a specialty comedy and giving it a hybrid release. And I mean, you can see Searchlight wishing that they had been in on the Palm Springs action with the the 2020 festival where that, you know, Neon and Hulu picked up Palm Springs, a $5 million comedy for an amount that was at least $17 million, And I've seen reports peg it as high as $22 million, which is a massive amount of money for what was a very funny, very good movie. But you can see Searchlight thinking like, man, if we'd been in on that, we could have really given that a nice platformed theatrical release. Obviously, that was during the the height of COVID, so there's there were all sorts of complicating factors there. But you know, I wonder how much the memory of a movie and a deal like Palm Springs played into Searchlight's decision here. I mean, definitely you gotta imagine that part of the mood and the tone surrounding Sundance acquisitions this year is that we don't know when this pandemic is, I'm not even going to say over because that feels kind of like a simplification, but you don't know what the theatrical landscape, what the entertainment landscape is going to look like in, in six months when it comes time for maybe, you know, end of year traditional award season, when it comes time to program a lot of these movies in that kind of sweet spot of award season consideration. And it's interesting you bring that up, Rebecca, because the festival also acts as a launching pad for a couple of high-profile premieres that either come in right during the peak of award season promotion or are going to really come out after the Academy Awards and the Independent Art House calendar resets. I'm talking about films like Happening from IFC, which is a period film set in the 1960s in France, an abortion drama that is going to be coming out after the Academy Awards from this year finish up. IFC is going to be coming out with this movie, giving it a big push theatrically. It has a lot of expectations for this movie to connect with audiences on a really topical issue in U.S. culture today. And then, of course, you've got cases like Neon's The Worst Person in the World, which premiered at Cannes last year. It got great reviews coming out of the New York Film Festival over the fall. The movie was among the premieres at Sundance 2022, and it's actually going to come out this weekend, beginning in limited release. This is a great transition for us to talk about all the titles that we can expect in theaters near you this month. If there's a movie that deserves that Sundance prestige, it is the worst person in the world's February 4th release date. 
uh, cohort Jackass Forever from Paramount. <laughs> I am I am looking forward to that one. I'm I'm not going to pretend that I'm not. Why would you pretend? I will not hear a single bad word spoken about Jackass. No Jackass slander on this podcast. None at all. No, I mean I'll, I I legitimately believe that Jackass 3D. It's not the best 3D movie that came out of that spate of 3D films. It is a uniquely good movie about people realizing that getting old sucks and that you can't do the same thing you used to do all the time. And now we're back almost 10 years later with another one. And it's uh, I am utterly excited to see this movie. Cannot wait. Big Jackass fan. Yeah. And it's like it's so wonderful to me that it's like you've got something that seems like it could be basically a play out of that joke from The Simpsons, you know, where man hidden groin by football is an award winning movie. But the Jackass movies are actually a lot more than that. And it's great that they can be funny as, you know, watching guys get hit in the groin with stuff. But there's actually also meaning in it. But yeah, I can't believe I just said all that. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think that's a great comparison point. I would say it's like that joke from The Simpsons. But if you put people getting hit in the groin in John Cassavetes' husbands, that's basically what we're talking about. It's just husbands with nut shots. Nut shots and husbands. Nut shots and husbands. Uh, And I mean, February 4th, I mean, I consider next weekend just to be a a weekend unlike one we've had in a while, because not only do we have Jackass Forever out from Paramount, we also have from Lionsgate Moonfall. Uh, Daniel, we both had the opportunity to see, I believe it was the first showing of the trailer for that movie at last year's CinemaCon. And and I just uh, remember the rumor, or maybe it was just our row, vibrating with a sense of palpable excitement. (laughs) I love how the marketing for this movie hinges on how stupid it is and how (laughs) fun that must be to see. It it is one that I'm also pumped for. You know, Roland Emmerich does a thing and he does it with a signature flair. And I appreciate that. I I like that Roland Emmerich is still out there blowing stuff up or threatening to blow things up. It makes me feel comfortable knowing that that's still happening. Johnny Knoxville getting hit in the hit in the groin and Emmerich's Emmerich-ing. Exactly. Normality starting to return to the world. <laughs> and with these two wide release films, these are really high concept movies. Of course, Jackass Forever sells itself, describes itself. It's high concept in a bottle. Moonfall, a movie about the moon falling. Uh, <laughs> is, you, you can't get any higher than that. And this is a situation that we kind of needed after the doldrums here in the January box office. Not too many new movies have come out since Scream hit theaters mid-month. It's really a ramp up in the month of February as audiences slowly come back to theaters with new releases coming in every weekend here through the month of February. A welcome change on the calendar. And that continues with a diverse slate of titles on February 11th opening with a movie that you saw and you did an interview for, Rebecca. Yeah, uh, Daniel, that would be Marry Me from Universal, from director Kat Coiro, starring Owen Wilson and Jennifer Lopez. It's just a solid, old-fashioned feeling, you know, just traditional rom-com, which I think, you know, it's one of those movies that it is not breaking any molds, but it just kind of wants to bring a little bit of that 
light romantic rom-com feeling as we gear up towards Valentine's Day. Uh, Daniel, you mentioned a lot of diversity in the slate throughout the month of February. Coming out on February 11th, we have Blacklight, which is, uh, again, a very kind of like Marry Me is standard by the book's interpretation of its genre, this being the Liam Neeson dad movie action thriller from the same director as The Honest Thief, which was a movie that did as well as it could be expected to do for theaters at a time when there really was not much coming out. This is the time-honored tradition of releasing an action movie on Valentine's Day. Of course, the last movie I saw on Valentine's Day was probably one of the worst movies I've seen in many, many years. I'm talking, of course, of the remake of RoboCop that came out on Valentine's Day weekend a couple of years back from Brazilian director José Padilla. I'm a huge fan of RoboCop. I was extremely let down. I was heartbroken at the movies, guys. Going to see this RoboCop remake, I learned my lesson. Don't go see an action movie on Valentine's Day. Or at least see a good one. (laughs) It's funny. I've been thinking about that movie recently because uh, my wife and I have been watching the Apple TV series For All Mankind, which is terrific and which also stars Joel Kinnaman, who starred in the RoboCop remake. You know, an actor who I think is quite good and yet is so specific in some ways that... I think people haven't always found the right projects for him, or he hasn't always found the right projects for himself. RoboCop is kind of an example of that, whereas uh, For All Mankind is an example of him finding material for which he is perfectly suited and, and does very well in it. And you know who does very well on the movies that he gets? These dad action movies that Rebecca's talking about. There's <laughs> no one in the world I'd rather see in them than Liam Neeson finding a second life in, in his career. Excuse me, at this point, this is Liam Neeson's third or fourth life. At this, <laughs> I mean, he's he started... When did Taken come out? Taken came out in like 2003? Yeah, it looks like it had old school cell phones. I'm not talking about the bricks. I'm talking 2008, about like, sorry. I think Nokia was yeah. still a thing when, when Taken came like out. Like he's taken the call on like a Motorola Razor. Yes, exactly. Yeah, because it was, yeah, Taken came out in 08, might have been shot in 07, which is the year the iPhone came out. So yeah, you know, it, but at this point we've got, what, 15 years of Liam Neeson doing these movies? That's amazing. And finally coming out on February 11th, we have the long, 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 long delayed release of Death on the Nile, 20th Century Studio, and Kenneth Branagh's sequel to Murder on the Orient Express. I mean, guys, this is the one where the the most real chatter that I've heard about this movie over the last few weeks is people talking about how incredibly clear and somewhat awkward it was to see how they were trying to basically snip Arby Hammer out of the trailers and make it look like he is not in the movie because obviously uh, he became a very controversial figure after the movie was already completed. It seems too bad because Murder on the Orient Express was a lot of fun. You know, Brana shot this uh, in 70 millimeter, which is pretty cool. It's clearly meant as a big, opulent theatrical experience. And you got to wonder if Army Hammer was playing a role that wasn't so central to the movie, if they would have just reshot the stuff that had him in it. But yeah, I agree. It seems clear that they're trying to minimize the attention called to him as part of this film. And yeah, you know, it's the sort of movie that generally I I love to see and I will still watch this movie. I'm curious to see it. And it's too bad that it's maybe fated to to not have the, the presence at the box office that one might hope. 
you know, I didn't love Murder on the Orient Express, but I did appreciate it as an excellent costume movie. And sadly, the sequel to another excellent costume movie, sure to be an excellent costume movie itself, of course, that being Downton Abbey, A New Era, uh, has been moved from this March to May, as presumably as a response to the continuing uh, Omicron wave. So we're going to have to wait a little bit longer to see all those fancy clothes. February 18th, the the big release is Uncharted from Sony, which is a movie that has been in development for a very long time. It's an adaptation of a popular video game series uh, that is exclusive to the PlayStation line of consoles from Sony. It's a video game series that in itself is very much indebted to action-adventure movies, specifically the Indiana Jones films, but many others as well. Uh, And, you know, this is one of those things where... There's a, a large fandom for the Uncharted games. The movie stars Tom Holland, for whom there is also a giant fandom. And yet I find myself wondering about how well this movie is really fated to perform. And I don't know if if you guys have any takes on this, but I would love to hear them. I mean, Assassin's Creed was a video game with a huge following and Michael Fassbender a huge star. And then that one didn't really move the needle. I think the the video game adaptations that have done well have been the more youth-oriented, like Detective Pikachu, Sonic. The track record for this particular genre isn't good. But we're talking about a, a different time of release and a different situation that the market is in. I think for where Uncharted is in the release calendar, it's going to be an important inflection point in getting that audience ready for the Batman coming out. This is an audience that you have to assume is going to be young males, the type of audience that has shown up to theaters in the recent past. And it's an IP that, honestly, I've been seeing a lot more advertising on this on television, probably more so than any other film. This might not be a big blockbuster movie, but I do think it's going to give us a sense of how well the market has been recovering in the first quarter of 2022 before the Batman comes out. It's starring, as you mentioned, Russ, uh, not only Tom Holland, but also Mark Wahlberg. These are two guys that seem to have chemistry from what I've seen on the trailer so far. They're stars that they're probably as close as you can get to uh, a leading man that has some star appeal for general audiences. And I think that's also the case for the other movie coming out on February 18th, going out to a wider demographic, starring Channing Tatum, Dog. It's co-written by Reed Carolyn, who also directed the movie with Channing Tatum. And now Reed Carolyn is the guy who, with Tatum and Steven Soderbergh, created Magic Mike. And he was also uh, part of the team that did the 21 Jump Street series. I think he just did the, he he was a producer on the sequel, 22 Jump Street. But there's sort of a triangle of, of creatives, which has been Reed Carolyn, Steven Soderbergh, and Channing Tatum. And so seeing, you know, two points on that triangle making this movie immediately makes me interested in it in a way because it's like they do movies that are funny, but they have kind of a, you know, a nice center to them, a heart, if you want to say. And, you know, Dog is about an army ranger played by Channing Tatum, who is bringing a dog to a funeral. And it seems like there's a lot of sort of bickering back and forth between Tatum and this dog, which right there, that's funny. I want to see it. But then you have obviously the overtones of the military experience that Tatum had, uh, the funeral that they're attending. And I can see a lot of potential in this movie for there to be more than it being just a weird, like, bizarre army remake of Turner and Hooch. 
Channing Tatum is very funny. He's like, Channing Tatum is a guy where when he came out, I was sort of like, oh, who's this meathead dude? And I, I think, you know, he, he broke out like in, what was it? Some of the step up movies, one of the step up movies. Mm, and yeah, um, good dancer. And he's a great dancer, but he's also, he's very funny. He's a good writer. Uh, and he also seems like a good dude in general, which is, you know, maybe doesn't matter when you're watching a movie, but it's, it's nice to know. And he's turned into someone who like if Channing Tatum shows up in a movie, I will kind of automatically watch it just cause he's in it. Like, I think he's good and he's often great. You look at like that weird dance sequence he's in, in the middle of, uh, Hail Caesar, the Coen brothers movie. <laughs> I throw that sequence on just if I want to laugh at something, cause it's awesome. I don't need to watch the whole movie. I just watch his dance sequence. So, you know, him anchoring this movie, that's a sell for me. It's probably a sell for some other people too. And then closing out the month of February, also from United Artists, we have Cyrano, a musical adaptation of Cyrano de Bergerac from director Joe Wright. Uh, this movie is hoping that it's going to break a streak of kind of, let's say, tepidly received musicals. And you got a chance to speak with Joe Wright about the film in the cover story of our latest print issue, Rebecca. What were some of the insights that Joe brought to the table for his first theatrical release of the pandemic? He insisted that, no, I am making this film now during the pandemic. And a large part of the reason for the timing of it was... I have a lot of friends and, and people I know in, in the artistic community, uh, the theatrical community in the UK, and they just need work. We need to make this movie now so that we can support this dramatic community. Also did an interview in this same upcoming January, February issue uh, with Jack Tremaine, the auteur behind uh, the Jackass franchise. So two very different movies, but um, both ones that I think, uh, well, I, I have only seen Cyrano, but I am very hopeful about Jackass Forever. And that kind of rounds out our uh, our February calendar, obviously, as mentioned, uh, that will take us towards the Batman, which, uh, you know, is the, the first movie this year, which has that kind of Spider-Man, No Way Home potential. And I think we're all eager to see how that plays out. But in the meantime, there's a lot There's a lot good in February. There's a lot of stuff here that, that I'm excited to see. A number of wide releases coming out from different studios, different genres for different audiences. Uh, it's going to be a very difficult Q1, as we've been mentioning, before the Batman comes out. But at least February is going to give us a little bit of traction just to get audiences coming back to the movies slowly but surely this year. And that'll wrap up this episode of the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast and the Box Office Company. Thanks for listening. Please join us again next week. Bye.